I invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. I don't know about you, if you often feel or currently feel, or maybe you've never felt, but I doubt that's true, um, a dryness in your spiritual life, uh, an emptiness where you feel like you're running on empty and you have nothing left to give. You feel like your spiritual life is almost dried up. It's so parched. I don't know if you've ever felt so weak in your faith and then looked at all of that and and then blamed yourself. said, well, obviously I wasn't reading my Bible enough and I wasn't praying enough and I wasn't doing all of the habits of grace enough. I wasn't um, meditating enough or studying my Bible enough. And that's why I'm in this place of spiritual dryness. That's why I'm in this dark place right now. And now all of those things are partially true. Uh, partially because we do not have our spiritual disciplines where they should be, that's always going to be the case until you are in glory, is why some contributing factor as to why we don't feel filled up sometimes. But that's not all. That's not all because you, uh, as one who has been bought by Christ, were brought into the family of Christ, the body of Christ, not to be solely an individual who uh, fills up their own tank all the time. You are brought into a body who is there to bear your burdens, who is there to equip you for the work of ministry, who's there to encourage you, to steer you far from sin, to point you to the right direction. So sometimes our lack of, uh, or our feeling of spiritual dryness is contributed to not just by our inability to keep up with our spiritual disciplines, but at the same time, sometimes others' lack of investment in you. Uh, Others who aren't building you up, but instead are so focused on themselves. The problem in Romans chapter 14, Paul presents these kind of two opposing opinions in a church. And he's warning them strongly. Don't be so caught up in yourself. Don't be so caught up in what you think and you feel and what encourages you. Don't be caught up with you. Because there are other brothers and sisters in Christ who need you at this time. And when you're just trying to divide, when you're just trying to push your opinion and agenda, you're leaving them in the dust. And that is not good for them. It's not good for you. And it's not good for the glory of God. And so he's in all of chapter 14. There's there's not as much discussion anywhere other than this, where it talks about, yes, you have differences, but you should be distinctively together for a specific purpose for the kingdom of God. So here in Romans 14, I just want to look at two verses today. um, Verses 18 and 19, but I'll read the whole section just to build up for us again. So we'll begin at verse 13 in reading God's word. Here's what it says. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if a brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken as of evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes peace and for mutual upbuilding. This is God's word. Let us apply it to our lives. 
verses 18 and 19, where I want us to look specifically this morning. And there's a lot packed into these two verses. It, it begins by saying, whoever thus serves Christ, or therefore, if you serve Christ in these ways, uh, in the kingdom ways that are mentioned in verse 17, if you serve Christ. It, it, it is constantly, every time you read in the scripture about serving Christ, remember the terms of service is that you have a master. And your master is a king over you, but that's the beautiful and most precious thing about this master, is he's a master who loves you and who has put uh, himself on the cross for you. This isn't a master who is a slave driver, who does not love you, who doesn't care for you, but instead he cares ultimately for your eternal good, not just good on this earth. And so when it's reminding us that we are servants of Christ, and so do you serve Christ? And if you do, it says you're acceptable to God and approved by men. That last section is interesting. We'll get to it. But first, acceptable to God, which is interesting because if that's wrapped up with the idea of serving him, you're serving Christ, therefore acceptable to God. You, some people might conclude, well, if I don't serve Christ, I'm not acceptable. I'm not worthy. I'm not welcome to God. This is not a, an acceptance of um, eternal value. Uh, and if it were, the acceptance we know is in Christ. But the acceptance here is pleased. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's the kind of acceptance. That's the, the pleasing it is when we serve Christ. When you serve Christ, you are acceptable to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 says, uh, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. We make it our aim to please him. That is our goal in life. And in everything we do, is just going to please God. I want to be acceptable to God. I want to please God. He is worthy of all that I'm doing. So make it our aim to please him. And we know the best way to please him is to be found in Christ and to be found like Christ. The best way to please God and be acceptable to God is to be found in Christ and like Christ. We know that because God the Father bellows from the heavens and he says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So if we can be found in the Son whom he is pleased with eternally, we found in him, then God says, you're accepted. It's only then on an eternal level that we are accepted by God when we are in Christ, the one who is worthy of acceptance, the one who has done everything and loved the Father perfectly. Father has, of course, accepted him. It's, it would be inexcusable to say he could never accept Jesus. Of course he did. Of course he can. And of course he will accept you when you are found in Jesus, when you hide yourself in Christ, as scripture says, when your life, who you were, all that you want to bring to the table, when you crucify it with Christ and you're raised anew with him, being found in him, then you too are his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. That's how God would look at you if you're found in Christ. And it's amazing to think because you think, wow, no, that is not me. God could not look at me right now and say, this is my son or daughter with whom I'm well pleased and just tell the world about it. You'd be ashamed, right? You'd say, no, 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 please, please don't say that. Please don't draw attention to me because everyone knows that God would not be pleased with me if he knew my heart or, or if they just knew. But when you're in Christ, when you've crucified your old self and you said, I'm not anything, but Christ is my all in all, 
When you've come and, and, and confessed all of your sin and all of your unworthiness and all of his worthiness, and you come and you find yourself in Jesus alone, then you are acceptable to God on an eternal level. But then on a day in and day out basis, you can be acceptable and pleasing to God in your life when you are not just found in Christ, but like Christ. As you're growing to be more like Jesus, the heart of Christ that you see towards people, the sacrificial love, the, the, the giving of his all for everyone, if you're to be more like Christ, that's pleasing to God. It brings him much honor and much glory that you're willing to put yourself aside for the sake of other people. God's pleased by that. And what's interesting is in this life, you may have things to boast about and to be acceptable before God and even, according to the second part, before men. But Paul's a great example of that. The Apostle Paul, who uh, wrote the majority of the New Testament, he had every reason to boast before God and before men. He was a law keeper. And according to the tradition and according to what he knew, he was one of the most pleasing people to God and acceptable to God for everything he did. He accounts it in Philippians chapter 3, beginning of verse 4. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That is a powerful passage in Philippians 3. Paul saying, everything I had to boast in before God, everything I had to boast in before men, it's trash. Because it's worth nothing when it comes to being acceptable to God. But what is acceptable is being found in Christ. He says, uh, being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. All of my righteousness was as nothing. But he says, what I want and what I count on is the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what he said. He wants to be found in Christ and pleasing to Christ as he represents the righteousness from God that he has because of his salvation. And then he says near the end, I want to become like him in, in any way possible. I want to become like him. That's where life is truly satisfying and that's where life is acceptable to God. He makes it his goal to please him. Is that your goal in life? To be acceptable to God, to be pleasing to him. Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 10 to 12, uh, Paul, encouraging the, the, the church at Colossae, says, So walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, 
fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He begins by saying, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Like that should be the steps of your walk, fully pleasing to God. And what I love in that section in Colossians 1 is, he's saying, it's not going to be by your own strength, by the way. You cannot walk in a way pleasing to God solely on your own power and your own strength. He says, according to God's glorious might. And then that will give you all endurance and patience with joy. It wants to be fully Pleasing to God. So whoever serves Christ is acceptable to God. Because we are in Christ and we're becoming like Christ. And the last part of that verse there in verse 18 is interesting. And it says, and approved by men. Which is, you almost think, is that contradictory? Because scripture says, Jesus himself says, if you're my follower, the world's going to hate you. The world's not going to like you. They're going to persecute you. If they persecuted me, they're most definitely going to persecute you. So what does it mean to be approved by men? Well, there's a couple of meanings here, but we have to think, in one sense it means you have to be well thought of by outsiders. So that's a qualification for elders in a church, and I think all men to leading the whole church is to be well thought of by outsiders. And it doesn't necessarily mean they need to agree with every one of your positions or even how you hold your positions so that you just... Go with the flows of the world so everyone says, oh, I approve you. I accept you. You're not offensive to me at all. Because we know the gospel's offensive. It tells people they're sinners and wrong. And they need to change. That's, that's not an approving message. And they're not, you're not going to get approval back. But what it here is wrapped up is the idea of how the world often, people who are unbelievers, often look at the church and see a bunch of hypocrites. Right? They see you saying one thing, doing another. Saying that you're supposed to be people who love and, and, and are you know, united, but yet you're so divided and you uh, tear people down. That's what the world sees. The idea of being approved by men is being um, approved as or judged as or seen as genuine, as weighty. The idea is uh, back in the day when they used to make gold coins, they would have... Uh, a gold coin, they'd pour in the molten, they would heat it right up, pour it in, and all the shavings would come off. And now, uh, what they would often do is mix in some other metals, and they would lighten up the gold, lighten up the gold. And so, merchants who used to, you know, accept these lightened gold and give out lightened gold were not approved by men. They were not uh, honest men, they were not uh, genuine men. And the gold themselves was not weighty. The concept here is, this is genuine, it's pure. What you say you are, you are. You say you're found in Christ. Are you striving to be like him? Or are you just doing your own thing? It's about being genuine. And, and that's one thing that, you know, you, though the world and people who unbe- are unbelievers can accuse you of many things, they should never be able to accuse us of not being genuine in our faith. Of not being genuine for our love of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they should be able to approve us in that way. Approve that what we say is genuine to us. And you hear that. Some people say, well, that's good for you. And I see that's working for you. That's a good thing. Because if if they're seeing uh, the work of Christ in us, that's what we want them to see and know. 
And so that's what it means here to be approved by men. When you're serving Christ, you're acceptable to God and you are approved by men as genuine, as not um, a hypocrite. You have weight to what you say. It's not just fluff coming out of your mouth. You say you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You say you're going to sacrifice. You say generosity is key to the Christian life. Is there weight to your statements about who he is and what he's done for you? So then the, the next verse says, so then, so based on this, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and let us pursue what makes for mutual upbuilding or edification. The so then. So there's this kingdom of God and the matters of the kingdom are not about eating or drinking or things that are fleshly at all. They're not about the decisions or opinions you make. But they are about, as 17 says, righteousness, peace, and joy. And then in that, you're serving Christ, striving to be like him, and being genuine in it. So then, pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Pursue is intentional, isn't it? Intentional, something you know a lot about the Christian life is if you read the Bible uh, and you're living the Christian life, you will know that you can never float down the lazy river of the Christian life. It never works. The, the Christian life is never a set it and forget it. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life instead is always intentional. It's always Pursuit. It's always pushing back because the inclination of this world, the inclination of our own hearts is to go away from God and walk further from God, to, to live for self. And that's not the Christian way. So the Christian life is always pursuit. It's always pushed back. It's always a plan. It's always moving forward. That means you're not just coasting by. You're not just putting, you know, little thought into this thing. You're putting much effort into your growth in Christ. Because if you're not, then you're backsliding. You're moving further from Christ. You're living for yourself more rather than pursuing Jesus. You don't ever slowly, gradually move towards Jesus when you don't pursue him. Passing of time does not make you more like, more, more like Christ. Only pursuit does. The Christian life is always willful. It's always planned and it's always pursued. If you're going to be like Christ, you're going to be acceptable to God, found in Christ and like Christ, it's always a pursuit. That's why you have so much of the New Testament. It's lovely, but it's sometimes burdensome when you see of all this instructions to put on these things, to be doing this, to be cutting these things out of your life, putting on these things, striving after this, pursuing this. It's never just a, hey, you've accepted Jesus. You know, you just wipe the dust off your hands, sit back and enjoy the ride. Never do we see that in all of Scripture. It's always a pursuit. And here, there's two things to pursue when it comes to the context of this verse. First is pursue what makes for peace. What makes for peace? It's so interesting because of the context of 14, of chapter 14 here in Romans is there are divisions about opinions in their church. Well, pursue what makes for peace. Well, one person might say, well, if they just agreed with me, uh, I don't know about you as husbands, but I know me. Sometimes it just means, well, peace just means you agree with me. Uh, mostly the strongly opinionated think that. Well, yeah, we can have peace if you can just get it right. That's not what peace truly is in this context. It is unity in the spirit. Even though you have diversity 
in opinions. You have unity. You're striving after the same thing. You are both serving this kingdom of God. It's not a matter of eating or drinking. It's not about um, whether you can agree on the dietary laws, whether you can agree on, on worship styles. It's not about coming to peace with those things. It's about uniting around the kingdom of God. It's not a matter of eating or drinking. It's a matter of righteousness, of peace, and of joy in the Holy Spirit. What strives for peace. We are to be those who are reconciled to God and make, making reconciliation with other people. It, it, you know where it says in, in Matthew, when you come to the house of worship and you, you have something against your brother or your brother has something against you, go. Try to make it right. As much as it depends on you, try to make things right personally so that it doesn't in, impact the way you are worshiping God, the way you should be united in heart. And you don't want to hinder your worship by being at odds with people. And you don't want to hinder your gathered people here, especially in Romans 14 and in every local church context, because of division over opinions. Pursue what makes for peace. What makes for peace is a united front in the gospel. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Strive for it. It doesn't just happen. We are opinionated. We have many different paths, many different um, ways that we could do things. And if we want to pursue all of those, we want to be self-focused, peace will never come. What's, what's at stake when peace is at stake is the divinity of Christ in other people's minds. When Jesus in John 17 was praying for us, he was praying for you, he prayed to the Father, he said, Father, make them one, make them united, make them have peace, just like we are at peace, just like we are one, so that the world may know that you have sent me. So if we are at war within the church of Christ, the, the outside world looking in says, they don't agree on anything, and so therefore it diminishes who Christ is in every regard. And Christ says, then they won't even believe that the Father sent me. So he says, make them united. It doesn't say make them agree on every secondary thing. But make them united as we are one. Well, how is God one? They're united in God and three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are united in heart and in purpose and in goals. They have different roles and they come across differently. They make different appearances in the scripture, right? But they're united in one front with one mind. And that's what we are to be in the church. So we're to pursue peace in one mind about the gospel, about what matters most to all of us. What matters is not the style of music or about a dress code. Those things, if they're going to get in the way of what matters most, who cares? That's what needs to happen is we say, who cares about those things? If they're going to get in the way of us being at peace and, and striving for evangelism and telling others about Jesus, we're both wrong, right? And that's the, the danger of having opinions creep to a, a level of priority they shouldn't. So he says, part of the Christian life is you pursuing peace. Pursue what makes for peace. And then the second thing, he says, pursue what makes for for mutual upbuilding or edification of others. Romans 15, uh, just, you know, probably on the same page for you, verses 1 to 3 says this. We who are strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. 
Let us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it was written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And so here it says, let us, verse 2, please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That's what the idea of mutual upbuilding is. is It's got multiple levels to it, but the one is making sure another is encouraged, strengthened, equipped. That they are not feeling weak and dry and empty and that they can't do this thing anymore by themselves. You're bearing the burden with them. It says in verse 1, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Where I fail in my prayer life, you have an obligation to bear with me in those failings. Where I fail in my mind, you have an obligation to bear with me and to teach my mind and shape my mind. To build me up. Because I'm going to feel broken down and empty if I'm not built up. Ephesians chapter 2 is a great example that that shows us really how this is uh, multi-level. We know that If you are in Christ, you are built into something beyond yourself. Your faith isn't just about you and Jesus. It's about his church united. And Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, verses 19 to 22 says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and the members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's the building of the church, the building of the people together, this dwelling place for God. Yes, God dwells in individual believers, but when we are corporately together, doing things uh, with more than one person, There's a special way in which God dwells among his people. He dwells in that temple, in that body together. So here, a question might be asked is, well, what are you building? If you're going to be building, as Ephesians chapter 2 says, for being built together, what are you building? You first must remember, what you're building is God's. It's not your kingdom. It's not your church. It's not your family. It's God's what you are building and to be building. And because it's God, we take care how we build it. And taking care is being intentional, isn't it? When you're building something, you must be aware of your materials that you use. You must know the materials that are needed. You must use the materials that are given to build up. Think about that in the church. What are the materials that God has given you to build up other people? What has he given you to take care to build up with proper materials Do you know the word of God to be able to use it to build others up? Do you know the power of prayer to be able to use it to build others up? Do you know the tools God has given you to encourage others and build them up? When you take care in in building, you don't only think about the materials. You think about the, the workmanship. Do you cut corners? Or do you have careful craftsmanship? When when you're building what is God's, you're gonna be careful about what you're building. You don't be lazy in your building. You don't go with ease and comfort. Instead, you realize what you're, 
investing in what you're building in, and you strive for careful craftsmanship. You strive with all of your effort. You don't be lazy. You use what God has given you in, in, in your careful craftsmanship as you depend on God. Think about the spiritual gifts He has given you. Are they for you? No, they're for the body of Christ. He has given you the spiritual gifts for others. So you use them in building up His church, His body, His people. And as we do that, as we realize that I need spiritual gifts to be able to encourage those around me, I need God to do this through me. And so sometimes we think, well, yeah, well, I can just pray for them. I can just ask that, you know, God would equip them and be with them. And sometimes he does that miraculously without another person present. But most times he does it through his church, through those he's gifted with different tools and gifts and abilities to invest in a person individually. Because we realize that individually we need to be built up because corporately we are a building. And if you are a brick in bad shape and you're a brick in bad shape and everyone's a brick in bad shape because no one has been careful crafting them and making sure they're strong, then the building will be ultimately collapsing. It will be not glorifying to God. But instead when we depend on God for the gifts that he's given us, And we use them with the strength that he gives us. All glory goes to him. And we we sacrifice. Whatever it takes, I'm going to build up his church. Whatever it takes. And that doesn't mean I'm going to build up a building. You could have no building and still be the church. Whatever it takes, I'm going to sacrifice so I can build into other people. When you find and you see the worth of the building, you see the worth of another person's soul in Christ, you're going to sacrifice for them. And that's hard because often we don't. We might think more about, okay, yeah, I'm sacrificing for the practicalities of a church. But are you sacrificing for the actual upbuilding of another? Are you sacrificing for uh, spending time and effort and energy on building others up in their faith individually? Yes, corporately we do that when we invest in a church as a whole. We invest in the spiritual growth of people generally. But are you investing in people individually? We are building into pieces of this kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. And it's important that we know the matters of the kingdom. Because if you think about the materials you need to use, well, what am I building into? Am I just building into eating and drinking and festivals and And those sorts of things? Well, no. Verse 17 tells us the matters of the kingdom. What matters most? Righteousness. Righteousness. A right understanding of the gospel. I want to build into someone righteousness. I want to make sure they understand that they're not accepted to God because of their own righteousness. I want to make sure they know that. And you know what's amazing is someone might have grasped the gospel and they might be a Christian. But they still need reminders that it's not their righteousness. I need those reminders every day. That it's not my righteousness that makes me acceptable to God. I need to remind myself and I need others to remind me. Because you know what? Oftentimes I'm discouraged in my faith because I don't feel righteous. And because I don't feel righteous, I maybe I'm falsely believing that you know, I'm not acceptable to God in this moment. I'm not worthy. Maybe he doesn't love me as much right now. Those are all lies. But sometimes I cannot tell myself and convince myself of the truth because I'm living it. I need someone else to tell me. The matters of the kingdom are about righteousness. And whose righteousness? Christ's. 
Christ's righteousness on my behalf for me. I need someone to build that into me. You need people to build that into you. You need to have a right understanding about the gospel and Christ's righteousness. Matter of the kingdom is righteousness in terms of holiness. We need others to build into us tools and methods of holiness, pushing us towards holiness. Because you know the natural inclination of your own heart is not holiness. And maybe the strength that you have is not there. So you have others pushing you, showing you, helping you to be holy. To, to steer clear from areas of temptation and sin, you have others helping you because you're weak. So why would you not want help? And why would you not help others to strive for this area of the matter of the kingdom of righteousness? We're building into people in this kingdom. Righteousness. The second thing of the kingdom in verse 17 was peace. Reconciliation with God. To know that you're reconciled to God through Christ. You need reminders and you need it from other people. Peace with God comes through repentance. And we need to repent individually. And sometimes we need help repenting. So we need people to repent too. Confess your sins to one another, James says. We need help repenting because oftentimes a vocal repentance to another person is a level of accountability that we need. If you're just repenting privately between you and God, yes, you're not repenting to another person. You're repenting to God. You are uh, sorry for your sin and you're turning from it. But if you're only, only doing that privately before God, you're likely falling into the trap again and again more often than you need to. That's why the book of James tells us, confess your sins to another so that there's others who can also hold you accountable, show you the trap, show you the cycle that you're in. God has given us other people that we can lean on when it comes to peace, our peace with God, our repentance before God. And our peace that we want to build in also is peace with others. We don't want to be divisive. Another matter of the kingdom is joy. Ultimate satisfaction in Jesus. Joy. No matter the circumstance, we have joy in Christ. And so then we need others to build that into us, to show us, maybe in the midst of a hard circumstance, show us Christ. To show us Christ again, to show us his goodness, to show us his mercy, to remind us of his faithfulness to us yesterday when we didn't feel it. We need others to do that because our heart lies to us. The enemy lies to us and says, look, God has abandoned you. No, you're so far from God. You are so dry. You haven't read your Bible in a week. God definitely doesn't love you. And you better not pick it up tomorrow. Because you're not going to know anything. You're not, gonna, you're not even going to understand anything. You know what? Don't even bother. You can't read more than four words without getting anywhere. Don't bother. And you know what? That's going to continue on day after day after day. Unless you have others to come alongside you and say, Listen, I'm really struggling with my Bible. Like, can we read together? Can we do something together? I'm struggling here. Like, you see the benefit of your own spiritual growth and your own spiritual health when you have others pour into you. Well, you think about that. Have you poured into others? Because if it's just you thinking about you being poured into, you're no better off reading Romans 14. You're just thinking all about yourself. But here we're to think about others. Here he says, pursue mutual upbuilding. It's, it's mutual. I'm going to fill you in areas where you're going to fill me in different areas areas. We're to fill up the body of Christ. That is our job in the body. Ephesians 4 has this beautiful picture about the purpose of the body. It says in Ephesians 4 verse 11 to 13, Christ 
gave apostles and prophets, the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The body of Christ and you as a part of the body of Christ exist to build up the body of Christ. To unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son. Maturity is the goal. So we must be aware then of the dangers or the temptations or the brokenness of apathy. Because the opposite of pursuing building up is tearing down. It's tearing down. It's a danger. And, and then if you don't, you don't think you're pursuing intentional tearing down of other people, like may have been the temptation in Romans 14, right? Like they're just disintegrating another person's opinion. Like there, there was that temptation. But even if they weren't, even if they're just coasting by, the other person might not be torn down, but they might be disintegrating. So that's why we're to pursue mutual upbuilding. You want to be built up, and you need to be built up. But you need to build up others too. Think of a construction of a home. If you just had one guy doing everything, you see that there's not much benefit in that if you had a whole team of others. One man doing everything by himself, it's going to take 20 times longer. They say, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. Things are going to be, corners are going to be cut. Tiles aren't going to be perfect. Framing's not going to be great. The roof might leak in five years. The jack of all trades might get it done and it might be sufficient, but it's not going to be excellent. And, and so there's nothing wrong with that. It's sufficient. But imagine if the guy who was framing could have someone deliver a bucket of nails to him. His job is going to be that much easier for that building. And, and maybe you think, well, I could never deliver, deliver a bucket of nails. Okay, well, you can drive to the store to get the nails. Well, I can't drive, then you can pay for the nails. There's always something that you can do in the body of Christ to be building up other people. You might think, I cannot directly impact that person. You can indirectly. There's always something you can do to be building up another person's faith in the matters of the kingdom. What can you be doing to be building others up? You individually are to be built up. You're to be building up church people individually because... Corporally, we make up the body. We're all made up of individuals who are broken, hurting, spiritually dry, and crumbling at the seams. But if you're only relying on one person, yourself, to build yourself up, or if you're only relying on yourself and my preaching to build you up, then you're still at a loss. There's still all these other people that God has intentionally put around you to invest in you. And you are one of those people who are supposed to be investing in others. If maybe we're spe feeling spiritually dry at any time, look around and think, who's building me up? Is it just me? Or is it just me and my pastor? Or is it the whole body? Are we doing our job right? The amazing thing is, you have depleted energy because maybe you're not being poured into by all the right sources. Not just, not just one person. And, and me as one person, as one shepherd, I only excel in certain areas. 
So I can't even give any, everybody what all of they need. I don't excel in that or that or that area. That's why plurality of elders is so important, to bring a vast spectrum of, of leadership. But the leadership is not the only place in a church you get poured into. It's the whole body of Christ, everybody individually gifted uniquely to be pouring into the next person and them pouring into the next person. When you're dry, you, you feel like you have nothing to give to someone else. But if everyone was always giving and always filling up the person next to them, there would never be a moment where you felt so empty you couldn't pour yourself out anymore because you're always being filled. That's how the church works properly. You've been gifted by God, placed by God, built up by God through Him directly, through your spiritual disciplines, but then by the church. But then you will also be building others up. As the church does its job right, if it says there in Ephesians 4, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which is equipped, uh, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow. Each part. It doesn't just say when the leadership or the pastor of the church is working properly, but when each part when every person takes the responsibility from God seriously and looks beyond themselves. The whole problem in Romans 14 was people who were inwardly looking. They only looked to their own opinions, their own thoughts, their own decisions. The problem was they weren't looking outside of themselves. So that's what happens in a church. Sometimes as we look to be filled, we become consumers. How can this impact me? How can this fill me? How can this encourage me? How can this relationship benefit me? But you know in any relationship, if you're only being sucked from, that's one sad relationship. And so that's why Ephesians 4 says when it's working properly, everyone's just pouring into other people, using the gifts that God has given them for the people that God has given them. So that here it, we see in verse 19 that it is an intentional thing. We're intentionally having to pursue peace because we're naturally divisive. Or it, Intentionally having to pursue mutual upbuilding because we are naturally selfish. That's why verse 2 of, 5, of chapter 15 says, Let us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And then it gives us the example of Christ. If you want to be acceptable to God, right? You'd be like Christ. Well, Christ poured himself out for others. Are we pursuing peace? And are we pursuing mutual upbuilding? If you're feeling dry and depleted, like your tank is empty, think about others who are feeling dry and depleted and their tank is empty. And have you poured into them, even in a small way, in the last month, two months, three months? What have you done for others in the body of Christ in the matters of the kingdom, the things that matter most, righteousness in Christ, peace in Christ, and joy in Christ? How have you poured into others for their upbuilding. May we be those who pursue this, who are intentional about this, who aren't just so caught up in our own dryness or our own opinions that we don't look outside ourselves and say, even though I only have one liter left, I'm going to give half of it to another person. Because if we all did that, and if we all gave half a liter to some other person, guess what? We're all going to survive. We're all going to get through. And we'd all have the gas to be able to build each other up. This body of Christ would not deplete, but instead we would be built up 
in love, and we would glorify God as we were meant to do. Let's pray. Well, God, you deserve glory from our lives individually. You deserve adoration from our lives as the body, which you have designed us to be a part of when we were in Christ. Thank you so much for what you have done for us and how you supply for us directly through your word and through our spiritual disciplines. But then also through those you have around us. God, we are not uh, on our own. We're not solo. And so we thank you for the gifts that you have given other people for our benefit and the gifts that you've given us for the benefit of others. Help us to pour out ourselves like Christ did for the benefit of your church, your people, that we may be built up in love and glorify you with all that we have to do because you deserve it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.